Well, it has been way too long since I have been with you. It is so great to see you all. Amber, honey, where are you? Way back, Amber. Thank you so much for that opening today. That was beautiful. Really appreciated that. Thank you to our choristers. Lee, it's great to hear you playing again. It just gives me energy, I tell you. Get a little extra stuff going in there, and my spirit is void. I have to Reminds me of good days. I'm not great with dates, that's my wife's department, but I believe on or about March 17, my, my mother-in-law passed to her rest. And I've had the privilege of doing at least two services for her. One where she was living in Lomanda when she passed, and one in her hometown of Exeter, California. And we were blessed and surprised in both cases with how many people came to express their love and support, how many people were there sharing memories and times. It was really wonderful. But when I preached these sermons, the context was to memorialize. And it's Memorial Day weekend. And there are things that we would memorialize, I think, if we thought about it together today. We might memorialize those who have gone before us, our own parents or ancestors. We might have relatives or friends who served in the military and died in service, and we might be memorializing them. Some of you may have put flags by your doors or up on your eaves, American flags waving in recognition of the freedom that's won sometimes through conflict. And so we do collectively have things to memorialize. When we have a communion, we memorialize and remember Jesus Christ and his death and sacrifice and bloodshed for us. I want to just take a minute and talk about some characteristics that uh, I used or spoke of my mother-in-law with, because I think they're applicable as we think about what it means to memorialize something or somebody and what it means to live. There were five words I talked about in relationship to her journey that could describe her journey, or our journey, it's just a matter of perspective and choice. First one was faith. We're here because we have an explicit faith. Now let me explain what that means. Maybe not every person, but most of us are here because we have something religious we believe. For a few of you, it may not be religious at all. It may just be a sort of spiritual conviction. That's okay, too. But we have things as Seventh-day Adventists that we've assented to and agreed upon. And in my mother-in-law's case, she definitely had strong convictions about what it meant to be a Seventh-day Adventist, things that she explicitly believed. And we have things that we explicitly believe, and in the second half of what I talk about today, I'm going to talk about the fact that we have an explicit belief in a God that presents God's self as a social reality, Father, Son, and Spirit, and the way in which that Spirit in particular enlightens us. The second kind of faith is an implicit faith. Right? 
It's the faith that comes because when we cried, our mothers or our fathers picked us up and held us to them. It's the kind of faith we know a lot about in psychological circles and developmental circles because it's based upon actually being close, physically in proximity to a newborn when infant. It's the stuff of life. I was listening to an interesting story, a, a, a piece, I guess, on radio and VR, about the new science of infants sleeping with parents. There's been a lot of concern. It's kind of, in America now, considering bad parenting to share a bed with a child, a newborn, because of risk of rolling over on that child or suffocating that child somehow and so forth. But what they're finding is that if you're not, if you're not drinking, if you're not doing drugs, there's very, 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 very little chance that that's going to happen. And in fact, that that proximity to the infant, the infant is able to regulate everything in its body according to what has happened in the mother's body. Its heart rate is lower. Its breathing rate is more consistent. Its metabolic rate is steadier. It's more at peace. Babies thrive on human contact. So why am I going into this? I'm just doing this to illustrate that implicit faith is developed when we're very, very young. Will our needs be met or won't they? Will someone care or not? Will we, will we be able to survive and thrive? And when it comes to spirituality, I think it's an implicit faith that we develop um, out of our, our early childhood experiences and others. And for some, that's something that has to be overcome. We did not have nurturing parents. We did not have that experience of being close to life. So there's a lot more stress and a lot more work to do there. But we're called, nonetheless, to a faith that believes that somehow we can trust our heavenly parents implicitly to love, care, and nurture us. Thank you. I've got one amen on that. <laughs> Amen. 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 Thank you. <laughs> you know, it's not about the amens. I and mean, I know you're thinking. Sometimes I push people and they're just thinking about what I'm saying or what we're talking about. What I, what I just want us to kind of settle in on together is that our God will care for us. That's an implicit faith. It's not a heavy theological faith. It's a childlike trust that somehow God is going to meet us and meet our needs. And that's, I think, incredibly important. The second thing was hope. Now, my mother-in-law was uh, uh, an optimist to the point of almost being naive, which sometimes we found comical. Her husband would say that she would leave the lights on, the porch lights on, for Jimmy Hoffa. <laughs> old enough to remember that reference. It wasn't a compliment when he said it that way. He kind of was a little bit pejorative, and then he, he meant that she was a bit on the naive side. And some of you mirror that. Some of you are a little naive. Some of you are just glass half full type people, or even glass all the way full. But some of you are more pessimistic, right? But when we talk about hope, it's connected to our faith in that we hope for things unseen. We hope for the fulfillment of what we believe in in our faith in the second coming of Jesus. And, and my mother-in-law certainly believed that. When we talk about memorializing uh, veterans, for example, or memorializing those who've died for our freedom, we're talking about a deep connection to a spiritual value that says, because Christ died, something really good has happened. Something beneficial and efficacious has come. 
we now have the opportunity to live in a new kind of freedom and to say that is our hope. Connected to a more than concept. The third thing was love. And of course, this is the most familiar, most probably over talked about concept, and the most difficult to do. It's the most difficult to do. We each love in our own broken way. Our love is never perfect, it's never complete, it's never unequivocal. It's never without reserve. Only God's is. And to the extent that ours is that sometimes I know we think it is, but we are intrinsically selfish creatures. Yes. Amen. And our love is not perfect. <laughs> right, thank you, Lee. <laughs> Self-reflectivity. <laughs> no, it's true. I will never love perfectly. My mother-in-law didn't love perfectly. But we're called, even in the text we read today, to move away from fear, which is really the opposite of love, yeah. into a, a relationship of love and trust, which is about that faith, hope, love, that's what that trilogy is about there, and to settle ourselves in love. I tell you what, as director, and I'm just going to say this very briefly and move on. It's stunning to me how many times I hear pastors say that their congregants say to them, or they say to me, you know, enough of this love talk. We need the real meat of the gospel. <laughs> wow. So you mean the 2400 days? Oh, right, it's 23. Did you catch that? <laughs> or you mean something else? What is it that you mean by the real meat of the gospel? Because nothing is more difficult than loving. Amen. I tell you, as the world becomes a more polarized place, I find it harder and harder to love. I had a pastor who uh, was unhappy with me and wrote me a letter and said, um, you know, you're just a bean counter. I'm about people. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, you are, except about me. You're not about me. If you love me the way you say you love people, you would respond very differently. There's something about me that isn't your kind of people. It's difficult for you to love me because of where I am. We all experience this. I'm not blaming this pastor. I'm simply saying we all go through these things. We have these feelings. And then there's community, right? We're called into a fellowship out of faith, hope, love that's, that's supportive. And Santa Maria has been so great about this through the years. I just bless you and thank you and commend you and love on you for all that. What a powerful community we have here. In part because we learned to live with differences. So important. We're not the same, are we? I value everything you value, you don't value everything I value. We probably don't think the same about every issue or every problem or every idea coming along, but we have learned to love one another in community through difference. And that is a mirror of what God's community was all about. And my mother-in-law had that ability too. She ran into all kinds of people. I think she was an organist at her church in one of the stories that was not told publicly but was told privately was this. 
One day when she was rehearsing, the janitor, who happened to be actually a fairly conservative person, showed up in drag to clean the church. <laughs> now, she actually thought that was rather amusing. Never told anybody, except maybe later her, her daughter or something. Never made a big deal about it. Never disrupted the life of the community over that. She just kind of found that amusing and accepted this person. That was the kind of person that she was in the community, and she did everything that she could to strengthen and build that community and make it strong. Self-sacrificing loss. That's what community is based on. When we give up of ourselves for the benefit of the larger whole, whether it's our resources of money or our resource of time, whether it's the, the energy that we gain from being together in a space like this. And finally, there's this piece of legacy when we think about memorial. And we all hopefully have something to look forward to there. What is our legacy to the world going to be as we as Christians, as we as Seventh-day Adventists gather here in a spirit of shared explicit faith, hopefully implicit faith, hope in what will be and things unseen, love that transcends difference, the hardest thing there is to do, and self-sacrificing love in the form of giving to a community that others may benefit besides ourselves and we might make an impact on the world. Legacy. You see, the legacy of soldiers who have gone before us and died for their country is a legacy of honor. Why we have this holiday. The legacy that helps us to appreciate it will take a moment, just a moment, to pause and reflect. It's a legacy that helps us understand the value of what it is that we take for granted every day. Same is true of the sacrifice and legacy of Jesus Christ. I know many of us are too busy. I'll speak for myself, maybe. Life moves too quickly, and I don't daily pause to say thank you to the God who gave God's self for me. That's quite a sacrifice. At the end of our lives, what will our legacy be? What will it be that we pass on? And so I just... I just wanted to, to make these comments this morning and share with you just a little bit because I think, on the one hand, this goes to two of our texts out of the four for today, and I'm going, of course, from the lectionary. The lectionary has tomorrow's Trinity Sunday, and so there are four passages I described in my pastor's note. Psalm 29, which we read, which is just a glorious reflection on the greatness of God, right? It's beautiful poetic reflection on the goodness of God, the greatness of God. Did you hear it read earlier? I'm not going to reread it in the interest of time, but if you, you want to go back to Psalm 29 in your own Bible, you can just take a moment and, and, and just bathe in the beauty of these words and the way in which these words exalt the living God. There's a second passage, and I'll take a look at that in just a moment, that also speaks to the glory of God, the greatness of God, in our, in our lectionary reading today. So when I think about uh, you know, how what I just said connects to this, it really connects to half of the lectionary. This idea that God is really great, and really to be honored, and to be admired, and out of all of that sense of who God is comes 
these values, that are brought to us not only in the Word of God, but in the way in which God reveals Himself, God reveals God's self to us in community and in life, in ordinary wisdom, faith, hope, love, community, legacy. Isaiah 6, 1-8 is the other passage that I was referencing next to Psalm 29. What I, want, what I want to say theologically about Psalm 29 is if you listen to the way the psalmist frames it, at least as it's translated, it says, ascribe to the Lord. Oh, heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Now, what does it mean to ascribe? A tribute. Give credit to, right? So we're crediting God with glory and strength. Now, that is slightly different way of acknowledging the fact than to simply acknowledge it, right? When we ascribe to something, something that's almost a subjective element to it, like we are doing that, the act of making God glorious and great. But I think there are two things going on in this word of ascribe, two things going on theologically in this idea. You see, God is great and glorious, but he could be so apart from us and apart from our awareness. Yes? Yes. In theory, God could exist apart from us in greatness and glory, apart from our awareness. And so when we take revelation... And we take our experience, those things that we have come to know about God as we journey through life with God, we ascribe to Him greatness and glory. That is to say, we are the ones who declare and give Him glory and credit in this way. That's powerful. It's powerful. If we ascribe glory, we're saying that we put meaning in what has been revealed to us and what our experience has been. Now, as we go to Isaiah 6, 1 to 8, this passage speaks to the glory of God as well. And it says, In that year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. So there's a, it's almost like this organic pool of Something, fabric, something. His hem extends from, from around the throne and fills the whole room. It's like there's this visible continuity between God seated on the throne and what fills the room of his glory. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. Fantastic stuff. I have no idea what that looks like. And I think of the revelation that's come to Isaiah as he's visioning these creatures, these, these glorious seraphs. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And you see this echoed again in Ezekiel, and you see this echoed again in Revelation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The pivots of the threshold shook 
is the voices of those who called and the house filled with smoke. So we have this metaphor of a dwelling, this idea, this vision of a dwelling. And the only thing I can make of the pivot is that these are the door hinges. These are the, the place where the door actually swings. The door, because they're placed into the threshold. And they shook at the voices of those who called out, holy, holy, holy. And I said, woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, yet my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And one of the Pharisees flew to me, and we all remember this vision of Isaiah's, having a live coal, a hot coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. The fire that cleanses, so to speak. But there's something else going on here. He doesn't describe the pain of burning and blistering lips. He's been touched with fire. He's been touched with holy fire. And he's been symbolically touched with holy fire in the place where he can prophetically utter, utter in the place in which he can speak and testify. And I heard the Lord saying, Who shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. At Pentecost, the fire that rested upon the apostles in the upper room was the fire that drove them to eventually say, Here I am, Lord, send me. Isaiah's vision is slightly different. It's a vision of a seraph bringing a live coal from an altar, cleansing him of his sins, but also empowering him to speak, and for him to say, Here I am, Lord, send me. So this passage does touch the passages that we're going to move to in the New Testament, where we have a, a, a symbol of the Spirit of God, spiritually cleansing and enlivening the prophet to be able to not only be clean, but to say, send me, and to speak in prophetic utterance. It's an empowering thing, an enlivening thing for this, this seraph is done with this cold fire. When we speak metaphorically, we would say, Lord, send someone to touch my lips with a burning coal, that I might speak of your glory, that I might be cleansed, and that I might receive and accept your call. I might speak your words on your behalf. So those are the first parts of our Trinity. Now, the text we read together, Romans, takes us a whole other direction, and I'm going to end there. But what I want to go in the meantime is to a passage that's familiar to all of you, and that's John chapter 3. You should feel free to turn there. This is the story of a Pharisee, member of the Sanhedrin, named Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus as a secret follower of the night. Nicodemus speaks to Jesus as a rabbi, a teacher. He says, We know that you're from God. No one can do these signs without having come from God. Jesus 
shifts the subject, or seemingly so, and he says, no one can see the kingdom without being born from above. And you know the dialogue. Nicodemus takes this bait and is curious, and he says, so what are you saying? I have to be born again? And how is this possible? It's a grown man to enter again his mother's womb. Jesus says, don't be ridiculous. Spiritual things have to be understood in a spiritual way. Don't you get what I'm talking about? You're a teacher of Israel. You're a teacher in Israel. What I am saying to you is what is born of the flesh is flesh. And what is born of the Spirit is spirit. No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. You must be born from above. So one of the things that happens with spirit, we were singing about it, is that in spirit, we're born from above. We're talking about a rebirth into something beyond flesh. We're talking about a birth into the legacy that is the enlivening spirit of God. There's so little time, and I can say so much about this, and I know I've said some of this in years past, and some of you may well remember, but we have sort of this dual uh, understanding of spirit, right? There's spirit which is breath, wind, air, we have that, but then those things become a metaphor for the Spirit of God as well, as that's plain. And it's interesting because when we speak of uh, God, we speak of God in anthropomorphic terms, which means that we speak of God as having like a human body, eyes and ears and hands. We speak of God in very human terms, and in terms of Christ, Christ having taken on human form, he is in human form. But we understood God through the category of being human and humanness in terms of form. And when we speak about the Spirit, we're doing the same thing, only we're taking on something else. We're taking on this mystery, this presence, that to us could be like air, or wind, or fire. There's something about the Spirit that gives life. So when God forms Adam from the dust of the earth, he breathes into him his spirit, and he becomes a living being. This breath, clearly, is air, but it's air that animates a body in such a way that a person becomes a being, uh, a body becomes a being. And we understand as Adventists that when one dies, the breath of life, the energy of life goes back to God who gave it, the body returns to dust, and the soul ceases to be, sleeps. So we have in creation, and we have in these understandings of spirit, and we have in these texts that we're reading, this sort of implication that we are made alive by spirit. And this is true not only in the flesh, for which we must be born in the flesh, but it's true of the spirit, for we must be born of the spirit and born from above. John 3.8 is maybe the most famous passage about the Spirit. The wind blows where it chooses, you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. 
That is to say, there is a guidance or a leadership of the Spirit that happens in our lives that isn't necessarily predictable. You can read more on that passage. Jesus prophesies his own death. And at the end of this, of course, he declares that God has so loved the world that the Son has been given that anyone who believes might have life. And that God hadn't sent the Son in the world just to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And so this is one of those few passages that have Father, Son, and Spirit all in one segment. The passage that we read then today, and I'm going to end on this, is Romans 8, 12, 17. We're debtors, it says, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, because that's the way of death. The flesh will die. But by the Spirit, we put to deeds, to death the deeds of the body, so that you will live. The Spirit is that which is, shall we say, God's Spirit, which is eternal. If we're led by this Spirit, this animating principle that not only animates our bodies, but gives rise to our spirits, and if we're led by this Spirit, who is the tongue of flame, who is the still small voice, who is the breath of God. You've heard that hymn, breathe on me, breath of God. You know, when Jesus healed some people, Peter gives his breath. That spirit that changes us, that animates us, that enlivens us, that makes us not just physical beings, pieces of flesh or meat, but spiritual beings, responsive to the living God, alive, aware of realities beyond our normal ability to see or ascertain. You're familiar with that passage, spiritual things are spiritually discerned, that is to say, we know by the Spirit what is of God. I love 8.15. It's a small s in the translation. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. I like to think of this as sort of an emissarial spirit sent forth from God, something we receive, something he abuses with and gives us. He gives us a spirit not to be called servants, but to be called friends. He gives us a spirit not to be his slaves, but to be his sons. The significance for this in the Roman world is absolutely huge. Absolutely huge. The Roman world was utterly patriarchal in ways that you cannot understand and imagine today. We have some cultures that come close, but there was no identity apart from the patriarchy. And a father, without any consideration of the wishes of a mother, could sell a son or a daughter to slavery. And 
Paul in this context is saying, God didn't declare us children who can be sold as slaves, but adopted children who cannot. We are heirs with Christ, brothers of Christ. And so when we cry, Abba, or Daddy, it is the Spirit bearing witness that with our spirit that we are, in fact, children of God. Of course, the downside of this means that if we're brothers of Christ, we not only experience his glorification, but also his suffering. This is where faith and hope, love, community, legacy, might cross over. As children, we bear not only in the benefit of the family, we bear our suffering. But we do this gladly. Because as Christ was glorified, so shall we be glorified. As Christ was resurrected, Paul is going to argue, so shall we be resurrected. As Christ is now in glory, so shall we be in glory with him. And now we get back to our first texts. Psalm 29 and Isaiah 6, in which we now live and see and experience the glory of the glorious God. I hope we as a community together will have the opportunity to gather and worship in that place. We'll laugh at how naive our understandings were. We'll talk about how short our words fell of describing the glory that is now before us. We'll have a new sense of humility and appreciation, for all of us will have received the crown, but we'll have cast it at Christ's feet. And together, we'll live out implicit and explicit faith. Our hope will have been realized. We'll be living in perfect love, in community forever. And that will be God's legacy. A humanity redeemed in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Amen.